Hello and welcome to the Caspian Podcast. I'm Mark Elliott and with me, I'm delighted to say today, is Tom DeWall. Tom really needs no introduction to anyone that's interested in the Caucasus, but if you are new to the Caucasus, I would suggest you read his marvellous book, um, which sums up, uh, he calls himself a... Um, a historian of the present, and this really deals with the issues, um, well, up until about uh, 2010. If you're interested in Armenia and the most defining issue in Armenian history, The Great Catastrophe is, again, a must-read. Um, but what really got me interested in Tom's work uh, is his classic, The Black Garden. Um, Black Garden referring to uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, well, Karabakh, Kara, Black, and Garden is uh, Bag in multitude of languages. Now, just to read you what I wrote in my own book, um, I said of that book, um, Black Garden, although its neutrality displeases both sides, the book offers a slight glimmer of optimism in highlighting the human closeness of apparently intractable enemies. And the thing I love about your writing, Tom, is the way that you do manage to, to see both sides. Um, doesn't that get you into trouble in itself? I know, I know whenever I try to sound balanced, both sides hate me. Uh, have you found that happening to you? Well, of course, absolutely, particularly with uh, a conflict as toxic and as polarised as this one, I guess you know, there are many such conflicts in the world, um, Israel, Palestine, uh, Pakistan, India, and so on. This is definitely up there with the level of discourse, the very polarised narratives about this conflict. So, I just happen to be one of the few people um, who I think has spent a lot of time on both sides of this conflict, but um, in Azerbaijan and on the Armenian side in in Armenia and, and in Karabakh, uh, which, um, you know, I don't know if you call it neutrality or you just call it multiple perspectives that I, I, I certainly learned the stories and understand the perspectives of, of, of both Armenians and Azerbaijanis. And of course, there are different perspectives uh, within that. Um, and yes, it is difficult when, when people attack you. Um, I think that's it's got worse in the last few years. I, I think um, with the invention of social media and Twitter, which I think Twitter is almost perfectly designed for people with poisonous intentions <laughs> to kind of dr throw darts at one another. And also people like, like, like me who dare to, to comment and cover their, their, their conflict. So it has got, it has got, um, difficult the last nine months has been very very difficult with this armenia azerbaijan war which is a personal tragedy for me to see so many young people die to see a failure to resolve this conflict peacefully um and obviously um passions inflamed uh, on, on either side i guess what sustains me is 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 that it for me this is not just a professional issue i've been um, going to these countries since the mid-90s I have so many colleagues uh, and friends who I keep um, on good terms with keep in touch with um, in, in these places so you know that they're, they're a kind of ballast for me when some unknown stranger denounces me in public I, I certainly feel I mean I, I've been writing about the area from a travel perspective since the 90s too and I sort of feel a certain fellow feeling in fact I, I almost yeah. can't believe we haven't met before but uh, I mean I, I, when you read um Black Garden, and indeed all of your books, what's wonderful is the way you bring a little bit of your own personality into it, and you and you give us these tantalizing, tantalizing glimpses of, of how 
well, what you were up to. And I mean, with Black Garden, we start by by you, you, or at least some of some of the people you're with, wheeling um, sort of portable suitcases across the front the 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 ceasefire line. I mean, mm-hmm. I have to say that f- reading that, I'm I'm absolutely astounded for a start. <laughs> but but I, I want to know more of the background. What what was the situation? How did you end up? <laughs> with a wheelie, yeah. wheelie suitcase in, in, a, in a war zone. Well, I mean, um, you know, I suppose I, I'm nowadays I spent more of my time in my desk, particularly last year, unfortunately, like everybody. But I, I'm a kind of journalist at heart, I guess, and journalist who wants to go and, and see things with my own eyes. Um, and when I've done that, I, I try to convey it. So that this idea of being a historian of the present, someone who when thing, you haven't seen things, you talk to people, you look in archives and so on, but whenever possible, you, you, you go out there and see things for yourself. And this seemed to be such a good way of starting that book um, that most people, for most people crossing a minefield is, is a metaphor. <laughs> in this case, it was actually real. The, the story there is Kerry Kavanagh, who was, who was still involved in this conflict, a US diplomat who was um, the co-chair of the Minsk Group at that point, did a very, very active push back in 2000, 2001 um, with uh, Heydar Aliyev and Robert Kocharian uh, to try and get this sorted uh, and ended up inviting them to Key West in Florida. There was a meeting which seemed to go quite well, but 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 many loose ends. Um, and to keep up the momentum, he then invited a group of journalists um, to come with the co-chairs um, and cross the ceasefire line, which meant that they had to demine it. They had to demine the strip. So we started the day in this refugee camp outside Agdam, talking to IDPs who had been from Agdam. We went to see the ruins of Agdam, which was obviously this horrific site. And then we got to the line of contact, which is the ceasefire line, actually, you know, walkable across. It really only didn't take Incredible. us more than, I guess, 20 minutes to walk across. Very overgrown, these thistles and birds. Um, people talk about the North-South Korea 38th parallel, I think it's it, 38th parallel, being this wonderful wildlife. Well, already seven years after the ceasefire, that was the, the case here, this um, wildlife zone, which, which was uh, in the middle um, of these two armies. We walked across from, with the Azerbaijani side. We were met by the Karabakh Armenians, met actually by this uh, individual, Vitali Belasanyan, who's still quite active in, in Karabakh, um, there was a rather awkward meeting in the middle. I think we had, um, as I recall, it's in the book, Azerbaijani caviar and Armenian beer. There was this rather awkward conversations between the, the two <laughs> sides. And then, and then within a few minutes, we were on the Armenian Karabakh side. And it was, and then we continued our journey. It, it was a kind of graphic illustration of the two parallel worlds in these conflicts sitting side by side with guns trained on one another. And we obviously well, knew. Because it, I mean, because it's, yeah. it's, it's unusual in, in that that conflict has always been sort of uh, self-policed, as it were. There was no, there were no peacekeepers. Yeah. Were you, were, I mean, personally, was it a terrifying moment or was this, I mean, I suppose you've been in Chechnya before that. So <laughs> perhaps. No, I, I, I've never really had any terrifying moments in Karabakh. I mean, um, you know, I was there always after the war. I mean, obviously in the Caucasus, we'll have terrifying moments um, with uh, certain drivers who, or, or <laughs> certain incidents on the roads, I think are, are the most terrifying moments. But yeah, no, I, I, the war I covered was the one 
And practically speaking, yeah. practically speaking, um, I know that sort of visiting Karabakh was generally seen as as a no no um, from the Azerbaijani's point of view without getting special permission. Uh, and was yeah. that difficult for you as a journalist? And did that become more difficult over time? It, it certainly did become more difficult. But I, I, you know, I started in the 1990s when it was relatively relaxed. Um, I guess for a long while, and I don't know if it's still true, but 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 uh, both sides tolerated me um, because um, I kind of told them what I was up to. When I was going in 2000, which was the year I did the research for Black Garden, I was constantly going back and forth. And I was sort of you know, um, passing messages, um, not particularly between officials, but certainly between individuals back and forth. Um, I, I had this obsession with the town of Shusha, which the Armenians called Shushi, and spent a lot of time uh, meeting people from there, both the Armenians and Azerbaijanis, and ended up passing uh, messages back between between people who had been friends there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I collected Armenian Karabakh Armenian newspapers and 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 gave them to the presidential administration in Baku. So I think from that point on, people they kind of tolerated me. And, and when I was going to Karabakh, I would always write a, a note to the Azerbaijani foreign minister, informing them I was going, not asking for permission, but I was informing them. I was going. That 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 was good enough, I guess. All those years, although I have I haven't been to Karabakh, unfortunately, for many years. Um, I do miss it. Um, I would like to go back. I do think um, I do have, you know, uh, friends who I um, three or four sure. friends I, I keep in touch with. But, but yeah, it, it. I think the isolation of Karabakh has always been one of the features of this conflict. I think one of the unfortunate features of this conflict. And and I did did feel a kind of responsibility to kind of say what was what it was like what was going on there what the people there were thinking so right now obviously things i mean a, a lot of the uh, i mean I'm looking at a lot of the stuff that you said before the war you know you, you've always sort of been pleading for people to talk and, and as you say the key west seemed to get very close to to a solution. And then there were other times, we were quite hopeful in 2018 as well. And then this somehow has slipped away. Um, Do you, now looking at the whole new situation, um, are you overall optimistic or, you know, so so it's gone from being the Armenians being sort of almost complacently Mm -hmm. victors to uh, there's a, it it seems to me possibly a danger that the um, Azerbaijanis might, yeah. make the same mistake. What, what are your feelings on this and, and, and how can yeah. Azerbaijan build peace? Well, it's, you know, that's, um, we, far more time is needed to, to answer that incredibly important question. I don't have my, all the answers. I mean, my answers would be, obviously, one for one, I think it's a great tragedy that this war had to, that this war occurred, that these young people Many of whom weren't born when I was actually working on, on that book. <laughs> yes. um, were, were, were killed, um, you know, lost their lives fighting this conflict. There's a new generation uh, of, of which has suffered loss, loss and trauma, and that's obviously put back the, the cause of peace by itself. Just, just you know, this this new blood, this this new trauma. That's the first thing to be said. Secondly, you know, there is an upside to this end of this conflict in that the Azerbaijani IDPs now have the right of return. I mean, it's going to take many years for many of these regions to be habitable again, massive reconstruction effort. I'm not quite sure that Azerbaijan so far is going about it in the right way. They seem to be picking on bright, shiny objects like um, airports more than, than, than the, kind of the, the, the bread and butter stuff. But anyway, that, that will happen 
eventually and people will be allowed to go home and that that is huge having said that there are armenians who were displaced by and lost their homes during during this conflict uh, on the kind of bigger question you know the pendulum absolutely has swung um all the way back um you know that um this time last year we were still living in a a world in which the Armenians dominated, they dom- they occupied these Azerbaijani regions, there was this kind of rather arrogant assumption uh, that this could carry on indefinitely. There was this hubris on, 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 from many Armenians that they didn't really have to do much and that just hold on to these territories. Obviously, they received uh, a very, very bloody and difficult um, response to that. And now I do fear that, that we're getting Azerbaijani hubris as well, that they're not that they're just pressing their advantage, that they are um, trying to consolidate a new Azerbaijani reality on, on the ground, which offers the Armenians no territorial autonomy, talks about cultural autonomy, but simultaneously also says, oh, by the way, those Armenian churches in Karabakh, they're not actually Armenian. So that's not really a very reassuring if you're offering cultural autonomy, um, you know, incidents on the border, even some rather talk, which... Uh, about um, Zangazur being Azerbaijani territory, how seriously do we take that? Probably not very seriously, but it certainly um, destabilizes. So yes, I, I think um, you know all that kind of pent up fury and frustration over the years has been translated into what does look like rather a hubristic attitude now on the Azerbaijani side. And if you do want peace, it's got to come from both sides. You can't you can't impose peace, as we know from so many situations and, and also from what the Armenians did. So, yeah, I, I do, I, I do worry. Um, do, do th- we are do, still a long way from peace. Yeah. Yes. And do, do, do you have any thoughts on, on the border demarcation issues? I mean, this is something that's been a problem in Central Asia, even amongst friendly countries. Yeah. Or, um, well, how- I mean, I think that, yeah, it's a painful issue, even between peaceful countries. We've got, there's obviously an Azerbaijan, Georgia, uh, over, uh, issue over David, I mean, it does eventually get done, but obviously, but both sides obviously pick away at it and poke each other, Azerbaijan's poking the Armenians. There is the issue of these enclaves in northern Armenia, which in Soviet, belong to Soviet Azerbaijan and therefore should belong to independent Azerbaijan that the Armenians took over. There's one Armenian enclave, exclave, uh, in Azerbaijani territory as well. So that will be difficult to sort out. I think it eventually will. The trouble is, I guess, here is that everything, there's no trust between the sides. So everything is about bargaining, even the smallest issues. These mm-hmm. poor Armenian prisoners who were captured after the ceasefire, um, you know, they, these young, young men still in Azerbaijani captivity, they're the subject of bargaining minefields where people, you know, are in danger of being blown up in the occupied territories. Deoccupied territories are a subject of everything is about. Um, negotiations uh, and bargaining, unfortunately. And now the other the other big factor here, and Gerard Liberidian has talked about this before, how even at the time when the the, the original conflict um, was at its height, and and they managed to end that thing, they didn't want a Russian peacekeeping force. Right. But now they've got one. What's Russia's game, or is it is it purely? I mean, is is there a strategic move from Russia? Or is this? It, it seemed like it must have been quite well planned because the, the peacekeepers were there in a flash. Yeah. What is your take on on Russia's moves yeah. here? Well, I mean, from my interviews, research on on the 
the first war and, and talking to others, clearly, you know, this was Russia's goal all along to have the same Russian peacekeeping presence, um, which maybe we should put in in quote quotation marks um, in that they had in Abkhazia, South Ossetia, Transnistria, in Karabakh in 1994. They tried that. It was going to be kind of part two of the ceasefire deal. Part one was a ceasefire. Then the defense ministers went to Moscow um, and Pavel Grachov, the Russian defense minister, said, okay, now you're getting your Russian peacekeeping force. The Azerbaijanis didn't want it. The Karabakh Armenians actually didn't want it either and sort of hid behind the Azerbaijanis. The Westerners didn't want it. So they, they were able to, to fight that one off. But it's obviously been on the Russian agenda. Um, it's about power projection. It's about getting troops on the ground. Um, it's about being able to sort of be manipulate the situation um, and obviously the, the other Russian agenda point, which is a much more positive one, is about opening up communication routes, north-south communication routes, um, um, which we're also seeing. Um, so what is Russia's... I think Russia has different agendas here. It's about getting troops on the ground, although I'm not quite sure they know quite where that goes. And there's yes. also a very, very different... Um, um, this is in a very, very different category of Russian missions in the sense that this is this five-year expiration clause on the Russian peacekeeping mission, which means that Azerbaijani has a lot more leverage. Um, so that's, it's, 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 there's also about these communication routes and transport routes um, down between Russia, Iran, and, and Turkey. Um, but it's also about Russian prestige. So much of Russian foreign policy is about getting res respect, prestige, um, get our people on the ground, um, and that's good, and not really kind of working out what happens yeah. next. Actually. Well, actually, that um, slightly swerving away very briefly to Georgia, that that reminds me of uh, of a story that you told in in the Caucasus book. And I, again, I would write, suggest to people that are interested in the Georgian conflicts to to read your Caucasus book, which packs in a great deal of very interesting stuff. The thing that I was particularly interested in, apart from the Boney M concert in South Ossetia, which was a, a bit of a wild card. Half was, of Boney M, half of Boney M, yes. Half <laughs> of Boney M, which strikes me as, again, one of those lovely touches you bring in. Um, but the, 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 there was a border market on... Um, yep. Was it Ergeti or something like that? Ergeti, yeah. Ergeti market, um, which was actually um, broken up in two thousand and four. But that now, to how was the breaking? Uh, that seemed to be a, almost a personality clash between um, the Georgian leader and, and the Russian leader, um, played out through 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 a market closure. Um, just can you just fill people in on the, if they haven't heard of this? What what happened and 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 whether that also plays into this way of Russia is thinking? Well, I think, I, I don't really see that as a Russia story particularly. I mean, Gnetti market was this wonderful organic market where Georgians and Ossetians and others would trade madly. It was so big that you, you apparently needed a motorbike to get around it. Um, and all these goods would be traded. It was the biggest wholesale market in the Caucasus. Now, it was obviously also a network, a center of smuggling, and no one was paying customs duties and so on on this market which was definitely a problem but in terms you know while that market was open there was never going to be a georgian ossetian conflict because the ossetian economy was completely part of um you know they were feeding organically off each other uh, georgia and, and south ossetia so that's not really uh about good point, good point. It, was, it was about mikhail sarkishvili the georgian president 
trying to kind of, um, you know, he want, said he wanted to crack down on smuggling and therefore close down the market and, and, and ended up restarting that conflict, unfortunately. Yes. Yeah, but, but that, I, I, suppose, I suppose the point is that he, the closing of that then drove uh, South Ossetia much more into the Russian camp. Yeah. That, that's right, yeah. And, and, yeah, then, uh, and then, uh, then George's attempt to regain it um, pushed Russia, Russian um, backlash. Maybe I'm taking it on a silly direction here. But, no, just, I, 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 but, I, but so I, I suppose I, what, you know, you, you've spent a lot of time in Russia and I think you've got a better sense of the Russian idea. But I, I still can't quite ever get in my head, other than prestige, what Russia has to gain from, from sort of being present in these difficult areas. I mean, it, and, and hmm. the degree to which this is a positive or a negative influence. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very good question. And I think one, there are some certain assumptions in Russian policy that if you're there on the ground as a sort of imperial, post-imperial in this case, arbiter um, negotiator that that gives you power over both sides, which maybe it does, but it also I think causes, you know, resentment on both sides. And I'm not. I, th I think there's um, over the long term. I think that there's that the you know Russian influence in these countries is definitely declining. Um, Russian language use is, is declining. Um, but certainly, you know, I think the main thing is that the Armenians, Azerbaijanis, certainly Georgians, don't look to Moscow as the metropolis, as it was, you know, back 20, 30 years ago, let alone in, in the Soviet era, they have other places to go to, um, to study, to work, to, mm. you know, um, and, and, um, and sort of, so all that they see is this kind of Russian power projection, the troops on the ground, which, 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 which you know, gives, gives them one Russian hard power, but not so much Russian soft power. Yes, and I think that that lack of soft power does seem to be a, quite sad. I mean, Russia ha, yeah. certainly it, it, Russia was always very attractive to people in Baku as a, as a you know as the cultural place, mm. and it does seem that they have somewhat lost it. Now, finally, um, looking at the medium term picture. Uh, as, as a way of solving the problems in the Caucasus. I mean, one of the things you've said beautifully is that you'd like to write a cultural book to the Caucasus, underlining mm. the, the commonalities. And we, yeah. we've just we've just done an article about the song Sari Gelin in uh, in Azerbaijani, mm. but the, the same song appears in Armenian, in Turkish, mm. in, in Iran. Um, looking optimistically, um, is is there a hope that perhaps, uh, as um, some have suggested, over maybe years, maybe decades, we, we could hope for something like a, a sort of mini Benelux, a, a sort of bringing together of the three nations and putting aside these problems. Or is there other, some other way that we can, can hope for a, a, a more genuine, genuinely peaceful mm. future? Well, I think this region, the, the Caucasus, for better or for worse, and many many ways for better, will never be Benelux. Let, let's start there. I mean, this suddenly, you know, re, regional integration through trade would be great, um, but it's going to be quite a slow process, if only because of these kind of rather oligarchic um, uh, controlled economies in all three countries where, um, you know, people control various sectors and don't really want to, are not so interested in, in cross-border trade, unfortunately. Um, you know, I think, you know, if there can be some kind of um, stability, if Azerbaijan can show a bit... Uh, more generosity towards the Armenians 
of Karabakh and, and not give the impression that they really all want to do is just drive them out. Um, if if um, the Armenia-Azerbaijan relationship can, can stabilize a bit, um, then sure. I mean, of course, you know, um, transport routes are opening up the north, south, east, west hub that is the Caucasus, possibly a bit overstated, but certainly can, can raise these economies a bit. As we know, and as we've just been talking about, the agnetic market people, um, when given the chance, do trade together. They, 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 they find a lot in common, let alone the cultural aspects, the music, uh, musicians uh, who are rather small um, part of the population, unfortunately. If, if musicians are running these countries, then it would be totally different <laughs> picture for sure. So, you know, there, there are um, possibilities, um, but, you know, unfortunately, politics, it's so, very, so, so difficult. Um, and the politics of history and of memory is, is so, so difficult here um, that, um, you know, there's so much layers upon layers of in, impunity going right back to, you know, First World War, Armenian genocide, Soviet takeover, Soviet period, wars of the 1990s you know no one has really been held to account for all this so that's that that's incredibly difficult um and is you know um and yeah well so what we just yeah so what we'll just have to we'll just have to hope for um a a trio of of musician leaders to come to power (laughs) well with that lovely thought i'd just like to thank you so much tom for joining us today Uh, you've been listening to the caspian podcast uh, with mark elliott and tom dewar thanks very much for joining us and i look forward to seeing you next time thanks very much mark